Hi there, thanks for being here. I'm Greg, a coach and the co-founder of Derby, a course and community to find direction. In this podcast, I'm interviewing people who found direction and dared to be, that defined who they wanted to become, confronted their fears, and took bold action to reach their own definition of success. I hope that you get inspired by their stories and that you learn about the realities, the joys, and the challenges of their journey. If you're interested to find out more about the course and our community, go to www.darebe.me. Dare be yourself, my friends. My guest today, who's a London friend and who I wanted to have on the show because he's changed industry and jobs four times and he was keen to share his learnings. He started his career as an accountant after graduating from Cambridge University with a degree in history. He quickly realized that that was not done for him and he became a training consultant for financial institutions in the city of London. After 10 years, he made a big move by joining Money Week, a financial magazine, starting at the bottom of the ladder. But he very quickly rose to become deputy editor. And, and finally, by some sort of magic, which he'll explain, he is now the head of education for Killick Co., a, an investment manager here in London. His job is analyzing financial events and, and explaining them. He's applied that skill to analyzing his career and explaining it uh, That's really well. Yeah. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Greg. Great to be here. Maybe tell us a little bit about the environment you grew up in and how did you end up doing history in Cambridge? My strengths were in languages and arts, let's say, more than they were in math. As to history, it was my strongest subject at school. The way history came about at Cambridge was a little bit by chance. A guy who taught me history approached me in the corridor outside the staff room one day and said, Bennett, have you made any decision about university yet? Uh, I think you should study history or law. And I said, I don't know anything about law, but history I can do. You ain't good, good. Oxford or Cambridge? And I had no way of making that decision. Other than I said, Cambridge is further away from home. Oxford, they can literally drop in on me. So maybe we'll go Cambridge. I said, why me? He said, in every classroom I've ever taught. And he was a very experienced teacher. He must be about 50 then. He said, there's one person who can instinctively write. You're it. Your ability to write and your ability to analyze together make you perfect for either history or law. I picked history mm -hmm. at Trinity Hall mm -hmm. and got in, much to my amazement. So he picked you because yep. he could see that you could write really well. He chose me because he said, you, you need that little extra something. And he said, what you've got is just, you know, how to turn a phrase, which isn't enough to be a historian, right? There's a lot of analytics. There's lots of other stuff, fact gathering, prioritizing information. But he said, you've got that ability to turn it into something concise and interesting. Yep. And he said, it's instinctive with you, even though you don't know it, you can't see it. Was I aware of it? Only insofar as I was doing essays on a certain amount of work and they were just coming back very well scored. Mm -hmm. I found it relatively easy to do history as a result. So easy, enjoyable? Yes, enjoyable. And because fortunately this guy took it upon himself to do a lot of extra coaching outside of hours. My parents didn't pay for any of it. Mm. And he did it for maybe three or four people. He was very inspiring. He was not about just rote learning facts. History can be for some people the worst subject in the world because the way it's taught sometimes mm -hmm. is very 
linear. It's all dates. It's all this happened. Uh, whereas he was much more thematic in his approach. And I liked that. So he would come at it the way that someone older would come at a subject, which yeah. is where am I trying to get to? And therefore, what facts do I need to make my case? That sure. this, it's the kind of thinking that's much more interesting. Broadly speaking, yeah. thematic versus pure factual. He would challenge us and he would force us to actually think through the case we were trying to make. Yeah. And he was, he would push us and say, where's your evidence for this? Why do you think that? And he'd come in with, as you'd expect, completely new angles. He was great. He was a motivator. What was your perspective on what am I going to study at university? History was a pretty obvious choice for me. And my next piece of fortune, had I had to rely on A-levels to get it, I don't think I would have done. But back in those days, you could do an exam instead. I did well enough in that exam to get the interview. How did you getting into Cambridge University land in your family? My parents were absolutely delighted. Obviously, my father never went to university. He studied accountancy in a shed in Sussex for five years in the age of 16. How did you become an accountant from doing history <laughs> Yeah, with Cambridge? Yeah, history to child's accountancy is actually quite a common step. I went for accountancy probably slightly lazily because my father had done it. It was easy to get in. Frankly, in those days, you went round the milk round and you just collected offers. The big accountancy firms would happily take in Oxbridge graduate. Ernst & Young was the one I ended up taking. <laughs> I went for accountancy on the basis it was qualification, well-recognized, pretty hard work for sure. I'm a big believer in grids and one of my grids has an X and a Y axis like they all do. And on one axis is enjoyment and on the other is ability. You, you don't want to be at the wrong end of both axes. And unfortunately for me, Chartered Accountancy pretty much fitted squarely into the don't really enjoy it. And worse than that, turn out not very good at it. So getting through those exams, unlike a history degree, was a triumph of application over ability. I got there in the end, but it took four years. Three is the conventional number. And so what happened after the four years? Then I left. No. Okay. So I got the exam. Uh, uh, by now I was, I was, if you've seen the photos, I was a somewhat reduced man compared to the one who'd left Cambridge with a two, one easily in his pocket. You know, I'd got my way through chartered accountancy. So it was looking slightly more world weary at this point. And I just knew I wasn't going to be an accountant. I had, a, I had a conversation in the pub with a partner. What are you going to do next? I don't really know. So, well, you're a qualified chartered accountant. So I'm, I'm telling you that the two obvious options are you become a partner here or you go and be a finance director. I thought, well, actually. That's a shame because neither of those two things appeals to me very much. Um, so then I got an opportunity to work in the business training unit at Ernst & Young, which was four people, you know, it's tiny. <laughs> I stumbled across it simply because someone was looking for somebody to help out on a training course. It had a small number of commercial clients, one senior manager who had the contacts and ran training courses for quite senior managers on pitching for capital. They needed a spare body. And somehow they got hold of me. I got scrambled onto an HSBC training course for graduates, obviously not senior managers, I mean, I'd only just finished charts cancer myself. And I got the opportunity to present. They said, you know, okay, you can have one 20 minute slot. Do you fancy it? And I, I thought I'll give this a go. And I loved it. I loved the adrenaline. Ooh. So it I, suddenly I thought, ah, oh, maybe so, here's something I could do for a living. Cause it's quite exciting. I'm helping people. So I, I had a a latent sort of teaching gene in me somewhere. Yep. And then I'm trying to do what's now called training consultancy in an accountancy firm. And that, that, yeah, you can do that, but it's a glass ceiling, small department. There are other ways you can do it. I get that graduate training, but essentially 
I then thought, I'm going to do this teaching thing. I better immerse myself in that. Because a lot of people did training in chartered accountancy firms as a kind of side dish. That's quite interesting in respect to what I'm trying to accomplish with this podcast, which is help people to know what they really enjoy and, and mm. what they're attracted to. You've got a, the history teacher that puts some spotlight on your yep. ability to exactly. write, which you may not have seen yourself. It's great to be able to have others shed that light upon us. In that case, you stumbled upon this training unit and you realize, oh, I really enjoy this. How did you realize that? When we were doing the structured set of courses to build into personal skills, teamworking, Excel, I was quite an annoying student on those courses because it turned out I could spark off the presenters and get more of a reaction than they could, Mm -hmm. which must have been deeply irritating looking back on it. I enjoyed that interaction Mm. and I enjoyed being able to add to learning points with my own insights, some of which were good, some of which weren't. And then I thought, actually, the honest thing to do is to be that side of the fence, right? I wonder what that's like. So that's where it came from. But the opportunity to actually do something with that curiosity didn't come until a few years later. Most people's careers, there are usually three or four good opportunities that come people's way over a course of a career. And I've had people say, I didn't get any of them. They probably did. They just didn't see them for what they were or take them. So when the word went round, the big auditing room I was in, anyone want to fill in this space on a training course at HSBC up in Hertfordshire? My hand metaphorically shot up because I just thought, yeah, that sounds quite fun. Other people are probably sitting there thinking, I can't imagine anything worse. Standing in front of a group, HSBC is quite an important client. You don't want to get that wrong. So there are all kinds of reasons why someone might not say yes to that. That's quite an interesting moment. So you rose your hand in that big room. That was exciting. Was there any sort of fear of, hey, this is a senior audience or I don't know the topic yet or or whatever. I don't know. Or maybe not. Well, training is a voyage of self-discovery in some ways because, yeah, when you stand up in front of a group, you are putting yourself in front of a group right? You're putting your personality, you're putting your knowledge in a way that is unusual. Presenting is a big part of a lot of jobs, but if you turn it into your day job, it's a huge learning curve. Now, fortunately, I couldn't see how big that learning curve was going to be at the beginning. And I was dripped in. No one turned around and said, you can just run the course. It wasn't that sort of environment. It was quite supported. You migrated from supporting a session to designing a session, shredding it to taking half a day. My problem was that unit only had three external clients that wanted that type of training. So after a year, I'd done all the training. I'd run out of road. Yeah. Going back to this moment when you rose your hand, mm-hmm. it was pure attraction. Yes, it was. I'm going to give it a go. Put it, put it this way. I'm not going to be an audit partner. I don't want to be an FD. So what am I going to do? So it's that teaching spark, which I think anyone who goes into teaching or training must have. Yeah. They, sometimes you can lose it, but you must have it. I had that curiosity about what it was like to be the other side of that fence. So my quadrant, if chartered accountancy was the bottom left corner, let's say, so not very good at it, also don't enjoy it. Training to start with, because jobs move around the grid, that's the interesting thing about it, started as, uh, really want to do this, really excited about it, but inevitably not very good at it to start with. I was better at it than I thought I was. So a high enjoyment, low ability because you're starting. Yeah. By the way, it would go full circle. This is the funny thing about doing the same thing for too long. So it would go from being something that I really wanted to do and wasn't very good at because I hadn't done much of it. 10 years later, it had morphed to being 
something which I no longer wanted to do, but I'd got very good at. And no longer because you didn't enjoy it anymore? So I worked for a variety of training consultancies over 10 years. Organizations, different size, built some quite interesting experience teaching accountancy, law, banking, finance, picking up knowledge and skills as I went along. At the end of 10 years, I just got to a point where what I didn't ever want to become was a bored teacher. The consultancy I was working in hired school teachers. And just as they hired, I was part of the interview process. And I said, we got talking about teaching in general. And he said something to me, which set off what was to be my next career move. He said, the thing about teaching, Tim, is after 10 years, either this is what you want to do for the rest of your life, or it's not. And if it's not, he said, get out. Because he said, bored teachers are the worst thing in the world. It's bad for them. It's bad for the kids. Yeah. And I thought, do you know what? I'm not yet bored in five years or will be. I, I can't see me doing this in five years time. And there isn't an obvious path for me upwards at this point. That was the conversation that actually resulted in me thinking, if I'm honest, don't get me wrong. I was a really good teacher and I was pumped up and I was up for it, but suddenly I could see the future and I couldn't see me still doing this. And so, which then, so then you think, okay, now I'm a bit old, mid thirties now, time moved on mid to late thirties bit of a problem. What am I going to do next? What I like about what you're saying here is you learn to ask yourself that question. What does my future look like if I continue like this? And, and just being able to, or not picture yourself into the future sounds like it's been helpful for you to make those, those choices. I've got better at it as I've got older, if I'm honest, if, if I had my time again, I probably wouldn't have studied chartered accountancy, but then if I hadn't studied chartered accountancy, I wouldn't have ended up sitting here opposite you. Maybe. It all worked out for the best. At that point, I got better at visualizing my future self. And I think it's quite important. Uh, we talk about it a lot of work in a different context, but yeah, being able to imagine what the world might look like for you in five or 10 years time is hard, mm. very hard. And the world will almost certainly deliver curveballs. I could visualize what I didn't want it to look like. <laughs> that I don't want yes. now, which is step one. Now, step the harder yep. thing is knowing what you do want. And here I had a bit of luck. I say luck, but the harder the work, for the harder I work, the luckier I get, as they put it. I'd been working hard in training and, but I thought, God, that, that, that thing that the history teacher told me, it's bugging me. You were the best writer in class. You're instinctive. And I thought I'm using a fraction. I'm not really properly using that skill set. Anyway, at that time I was a subscriber to a magazine called Money Week, had been for a while and the week, which is quite well-known titles. Money Week is a smaller one, the offshoot. And in the editorial column, one day around this time, Merrin Somerset Webb, the editor then dropped a tiny couple of sentences at the end of a column saying, I'm looking for a new writer. If you think you've got what it takes, send me a CV, just a little throwaway line, <laughs> not even highlighted. <laughs> and I read that and I thought clearly that's not for a chartered accountant who's done 10 years of training consultancy. Good luck to whoever that is. And then I thought, do you know what? I am going to put my CV in. I'm going to do this. And I put my CV in. I had to submit some work, some articles. And much to my amazement, a call came through, I think pretty much direct from Merrin actually saying, hey. come in, come and meet the commercial director. And she said, do you want to ask me anything? I said, yeah, amongst other things, How, you know, can you afford me a chartered accountant training consultant? I'd done, done okay. It wasn't, wasn't spectacular money, but I'd had some money behind me. And she went, the money here is horrible. I remember those words. 
She went, you're not going to like it. But if you want the break, you might get the break. And she called me in, interviewed. And basically she said, you can write. I can tell you can write. So you need a lot of work. You need, you need a lot of restyling, retooling. You know I mean, it's different writing a dissertation. It, yeah, writing completely, an yes, it, apps, writing commercial articles that got to sell for money, got to grab attention. You know, yeah. uh, it's a very different skill. But she said, if you want the shot, we'll give it to you. So I took a massive pay cut. I wasn't married at the time. So, we're, that, so this is a big moment, right? You've been doing something yeah. for 10 years. You've already changed career. C can you explain what was going on in your mind? You, you put it quite nicely. My dad said, what on earth are you playing at? <laughs> exactly. <Yeah>. <laughs> People were like, you, you're crazy. Why, why would you more or less, as, as they th thought it appeared, give up chartered accountancy. Why would you do that? Mm. I was like, I'm solvent. I'm not married. I have no kids. I've got this one opportunity in front of me. I had a conversation with an MD I worked for the week before the interview of Money Week. And he said to me, one thing's clear, you're a trainer. How old are you? He said, mid, late thirties. He said, I'm telling you, you're a trainer. Funny enough, that annoyed me. I said, I'll, I'll tell you who I am. You're not going to tell me. And maybe next week when I had a conversation with Merrin, something in me thought, no, I'm, I'm going to go for this. <laughs> now I should, there are a few things you need to know. Money Week, Merrin prided herself on not hiring trained journalists. And it wasn't just a financial thing. It was actually that she wanted the voice for that magazine mm -hmm. to be independent, mm -hmm. to be its own thing. Mm -hmm. So to answer your question, for me, it was a gamble. It was a risk. It could have been a dead end move in some respects. But, but how it all sounds like for somebody normal to do this, you'd almost have to be desperate or you really want to write. And you didn't sound, from what I heard so far, you what it was desperate and you didn't seem to want to write desperately either. What I, what I didn't want to do was to carry on doing the kind of style of city training that I've been doing for years. Yeah. It was physically hard. You lived on your wits. But also I always wondered how long that style of teaching would last. At that point, I wanted to retool. I thought I need another skill. I suddenly feel quite niche in what I'm doing. I was like, that doesn't uh -huh. sound good because I'm. What, mid late thirties, you're looking at another 30 year of career, right? Yeah. You're, it's, it's early days in some respects. So the money week opportunity turned out to be a huge one because I got in as a, a senior writer, I think they called me, but I wasn't at the bottom. I worked and I was doing 13, 14 hour days. You know, just working on my style, working on articles. I got to rapidly write almost every page in the magazine from one way or another. Oh, it's weekly and it was successful. It was growing at the time. In the five years I was there, it doubled its subscription numbers. I think mm. 25,000 a week to 50,000 a week, which made it at that point, the most successful financial magazine in the UK. And it was a fun place to work because it was hard. It was challenging, but it was quite fun. In my trajectory up to deputy editor, which only took two or three years, I got to edit every page. I got to design the cover or certainly help with that process. I got to work with a guy called John Collor, who founded the week magazine half a day a week, and that kind of access, very successful Sunday times columnist in his own right, founded the week magazine, money week was an offshoot. So he came in on a kind of consultancy basis, but I got to work with Merrin, John Stepek, who's still there. So I got to learn a, a heck of a lot about writing, editing, commissioning, copywriting, advertising in a way that you couldn't really get anywhere else. What, what's interesting, what you're saying is there is the learning element, which I could sense the excitement of mm -hmm. learning again, of developing yeah. this new skill. <clears throat> and it's a quite a common theme to where the other people I've, I've interviewed is when you make that jump to something else, there is 
real excitement for suddenly, oh, I can learn new things again. Yeah. And I can sense that excitement. And in fairness, it sounded like a leap into the dark. But actually, if you think about what I was doing on a day-to-day basis at the beginning, it's an investment-based magazine. And I had a lot of knowledge sure. garnered during my career. And if you think about what training is, it is distilling a vast body of information into a message that lands with an audience. And put like that, there's suddenly more crossover mm-hmm. between training and say copywriting yeah. than it might first appear to the outside world. Yeah. If that makes sense. There, there is a cross-pollination in skill sets. So you rose from near the bottom of the ladder to become the deputy editor. The deputy editor was a, was a great position to have at Money Week. I, I did everything. Some weeks I was literally responsible for getting the magazine out mm. from start to finish, dealing with freelance copywriters, full-time copywriters, editing all the pages, working with the images specialists, the caption specialists, the cover specialists. But once you've done that on a weekly magazine quite a few times, you've done it in that sense. And there were offshoots, there were newsletters going out around the edges, supplements, events, but I'd done what I could do. And the glass ceiling was the fact that John Stepek and Merrin Somerset Webb above me, Mm. well-established, no names. There was only so far further I could go. Around that time, this was another piece of luck. So at Money Week, Merrin, I think it was, approached me one day and said, Tim, the sales team need to know more about what they're talking about. And you're the right guy. So can you do something for them? I was like, yeah, let's do a lunchtime session once a week, voluntary. So the first one I ran, imagine you're in sales and you're told that Tim Bennett's going to be standing there talking about (laughs) how shares work or waffling about derivatives. Yeah, so the the take up on the first one was, let's put it, uh, I wasn't just talking to myself. But uh, lots of people were missing. So one of the guys in the room said, this is actually pretty good. So what are we going to do for the others? I thought, I don't want to run these things twice, really, every week. So we can either force them to come along, which never works well with salespeople, or uh, record it. Like we need to host it on something. So what are we going to do? So so Mickey Mouse video camera comes out, create a file. It's just, we're going back 10 years. So I said, well, you can film me on on this thing. And he said, well, can we host this on your player? We haven't got a player. We looked around. Ah, YouTube, right? Now, 10 years ago, YouTube, people knew what it was, but it wasn't as well known as it is now. And he said, there's a thing which is free and it seems quite simple to use. I'm going to upload it on there. It's a little video clip. And then, because we didn't know what we were doing, we, we, the setting we chose somehow was public because it's meant to be for people in the business to sure. just play catch up. Sure. And so we did one and then another. And after about five or six of these catch up sessions, Someone went, crikey, these are popular. I said, what do you mean? You know, it's the same eight people internally or whatever it is they need to, no, no, they're popular outside this building. And sure enough, the first one up about what is a PE ratio, you know, suddenly we would have thousands of hits. Mm-hmm. I was like, my mum can't be that bored. Somebody's watching this cloth. And then the likes coming in and comments, it was all quite exciting. You know, suddenly a part of me thought this could be a great way to reawaken the toolbox that was laying dormant for a while on the training side and not only teach internally, but why not? Why not let other people have the benefit of these little segments of information? It's good good for Money Week, it's good brand awareness. So out go these weekly videos. So we started doing it as something people could watch internally on YouTube and just as a brand awareness tool. Why not? Money Week videos, it was called, I think. I did one a week and it just went bananas. Long story short, some of them 
to this day, they're still out there, Money Week videos. Some of the top ones have got seven, eight, nine hundred thousand hits. Oh, wow. And the subscribers to Money Week videos channel is a hundred and something thousand. And so you might be wondering, so what happened next? Because I've now been in my current employer, my last one for seven odd years, Paul Killick is the owner of Killick and Go. Wanted to find someone who could do some form of financial education and also always wants to be on the front foot where tech's concerned. Anyway, I think the conversation was something like, have you seen this guy on YouTube? And Paul was like, oh yeah, the videos are public. Everyone can watch them. Actually, this is good stuff, good content. So I, I was called in to Mayfair for a meeting with Paul Killick and his COO. And he said, we could make a role for you here. And neither of us knew exactly what that role was going to be, but we essentially, for the first time in my career, which was awesome, we almost took out a blank sheet of paper and looked at what projects I could take on as part of an education role, let's say. And it turned out to be a lot. So I took over the quarterly magazine for obvious reasons, given my background, a weekly video, call it podcast, YouTube channel, Killick Explains, which has been running ever since. I do audio sound bites. I've written guides. So pulling on my schools, my skill set of editing, presenting, I've done some press work for them. There was a few projects Paul wanted, wasn't a completely blank sheet of paper. And then I built around it. How did you make that choice? You explained the context. It was sort of a glass ceiling. And then they came to you and do you want to work with us? What made you make that choice? One was the opportunity to move on. Actually, I had been at Money Week. I could have stayed at Money Week. There was no pressure to leave, quite the reverse actually, but I'd been there five odd years. I had done most of the things that were available for me to do at that point. In a big company, you just then move departments or move teams or move country, but I was already quite close to the apex. The opportunity to go and be my own boss effectively at Killick, because that's what I am. I report to Paul and Paul will always let me know, you know, in certain terms, if he's not happy with something I do, but that's increasingly rare. Basically, I had the opportunity to step out from underneath Merrin and John and be my own boss, which was scary. I was stepping away from Money Week into investment management and wealth management. And I knew I'd meet there a certain amount of skepticism about what an education person does and why they need one and how much is this going to cost. It's a chance I wouldn't have got without Money Week. It was better paid moving from magazine journalism to investment management. That's never been the driving factor in my decisions, but it's helpful. <laughs> and it gave me the opportunity to work, you ask about motivations, in a part of London that I'd always secretly quite fancied working in. Okay. Mayfair. So it was a combination of the opportunity, the package, the location, and also the structure of the business. Fundamentally, it's quite a nimble business mm -hmm. because it's privately owned. Yeah. And it, some of the projects I've been able to do, I've got colleagues working at big banks who just said, we'd love to do some of that, but it's just not going to happen. I'm not in that way. So there was another lever and it was an opportunity for me to learn as well, actually, because in my journey through Killick, I've had to learn how the investment management and wealth planning industry works. So when you look back at your different moves that you made, which one would you say was the most rewarding? I would say the last one. Because that really, Killick, is where I got the opportunity to bring together in a coherent way all of the skills that I've been building. I always think as you work your way through a career, you should view yourself as though you're self-employed. What I mean by that is 
at certain points in my career, I've looked at my skill set and thought there's a gap or what happens if, what if that doesn't exist anymore? And I think if you have that mindset, you're self-employed. And unfortunately, companies are much more short-term than they used to be. They hire and fire. So it's fair enough that employees have a little bit of that mindset too. And which move was the hardest? It's a good question. So I'm going to ask this two ways. The hardest move to justify was Money Week, which made it challenging to make in a way. Because money or... I knew I could manage on the money. I've always been able to scale down my outgoings and my income, which I think is an important skill in life, actually. I can spend up and I can spend down. So I knew I could manage the financial transition, but that was fine. I didn't have a lot of dependents. I wasn't paying private school fees. But the perception, I had to sell it to people. They were like, you're doing what? You're going, why? Some of them knew what money we was. It was quite a successful title. They were like, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to start, effectively start at the bottom? Mm-hmm. I could see that I could go up the ranks quite quickly. If I got my act together, I knew I had the tools to rise. That was the hardest move to make in terms of people getting it. But almost within two weeks of arriving, I knew I'd done the right thing because I suddenly started deploying my creative writing skills, my nascent editing skills. And I suddenly thought, yeah, this is the skill set I want to be using right now. I need to focus on using language, getting messages across and really targeting those messages. The USP in my videos is I start at the end. A lot of university degrees build from the bottom mm-hmm. and you don't even know what it is you're learning half the time. Yeah. It's like a reveal. And sometimes the reveal doesn't reveal anything, right? Whereas my videos, very simple, I, I get straight in mm. why you need to listen to this or not. So convincing other people that Money Week was the right move was hard, but ultimately... And when you say the people? Parents, friends, my colleagues... Ultimately, the only person I have to convince is me, especially in that situation. It's not true now. And my wife needs to be in the conversation. But right then, I didn't have anyone to answer to per se. But it's always been important to me to try and bring people on the journey. So in answer to your question, my father was baffled. He'd worked hard to be a chartered accountant for five years, hadn't gone to university. His perception, I think, was probably that I'd had the easier path. I think he would have perceived it then as slightly throwing it up in the air to go and do this money week opportunity internally it was tough changing jobs is always tough making a lateral career move is challenging you challenge yourself it's new people there's cynicism there's what's what's his background why is he here he's older all those things but i knew pretty quickly it was the right thing to do (laughs) i didn't know at that point what necessarily exactly where it would lead but i knew that was a skill set that if i could master it and add it to what i already had would present an opportunity. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see what that opportunity was going to be. And it came out of the blue, but it did arrive. And people said to me, oh, you are lucky to get a phone call from Paul Killick. But again, it comes down to, do you take the call? Do you go for the interview? Do you know what I mean? Do you go for the blank sheet of paper? Do you go for a new industry? But I've got to say, you've used the word luck many times and okay, you've been lucky, but you've clearly seen the opportunities as they came and, and that has served you i feel like every time you made a move you went around grabbed what you could learn what you could delivered what you could and then at some point okay been there done that what else and then moved on i've always taken that view of am i sitting on my laurels am i in danger of getting bored or cynical and i've always wanted to try and avoid that if i can yeah do you know what i mean i've always wanted to try and go out of the Sounds a bit glamorous to go out of the top. I didn't think I could get any better at training, but I could get worse. So I moved on. I didn't think I could do any more at Money Week. It wasn't like 
I was rubbish or I was in danger of getting fired. Right. Far from. It, it wasn't enough to just sit there. Prior to Money Week, I was working in a large wealth management company. And if someone said to me, frankly, Tim, you could have a much easier life, a better paid life just staying here. Why this move to Money Week? But it wasn't enough for me. It wasn't enough. I, I couldn't just go in day in, day out, not delivering, not achieving, not visibly using my energy to help other people. In what one way or another, the biggest satisfaction I still get from what I do now is the response it engenders in other people. I had one recently from a, a lady in the Midwest of America, just separated from her husband, two small children. She said, to pay the bills, fund the kids. I needed to study accountancy. Stumbled on your videos. I watched all the ones related to the exams I've got to take, passed the exams. Thank you very much. You saved me a fortune. I enjoy knowing that people are getting benefit from my videos. If they weren't, I'd turn them off because it's, it's not about me, believe it or not. I'm in them, but it's, but it's about knowing that people who I may never meet yep. are getting something out of my knowledge. Hey, this is what this podcast is about, right? This podcast yeah. is not about me. It's not about you as much as yeah. what now, our story has to tell to others. Yeah. Before we, we stop, I just wonder if there is anything else that we missed. So people, you, you know, email me about careers in finance, about what it takes, what it's all about. And I, I always say, whatever career you're starting in, if you go back to my quadrant, my grid, it's not realistic to expect to be in the top right-hand corner straight away, which I wish I just be at 25. It's unlikely you will land a job that you love and you're good at in brackets and pays enough, if that's a priority, but love it. So try and go for one of them and the other will usually follow. If you're good at something that really helps when it comes to eventually, whether you'll find a way to, to like and love it. Mm -hmm. And if you love doing something, even if you're not desperately good at it, you'll probably get better at it. Mm -hmm. So you might get to that. Just don't start off bottom left, ideally. If you hate it and you're not much good at it, then you've got a bit of fixing to do later. My closing piece of advice would be keep your eyes open because the opportunities are there, but you've got to see them and grab them. There may only be three or four good ones. How do you know it's a good one? It's about knowing yourself and it's, it's about being honest about where you are at that particular point and what will fit both your skill set and what you want to do next. What's a good opportunity for you? Because frankly, What's a good opportunity for me at any one point in time? Other people would have said that's a career graveyard, that is. So knowing yourself is a key ingredient in knowing which opportunity you take. And then you've got to take it, which requires a little bit of courage. Tim, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. It's been great. been delightful. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Derby Podcast. I hope it inspired you and that you got to learn about what it actually is like when you decide to do what you really want to do. If you like this episode, please share it and subscribe on your usual podcast player. If you want some help to find direction, have a look at Derby, the course and community, which you can find at www.derby.me. It's D-A-R-E-B-E dot -E M-E. Till next we meet, Derby yourself.